0: Dead bodies is not for the squeamish, and is intended for mature audiences. Kirsten, Chanel did a prank on me. Can you tell her off, please? No,
1: I didn't. So, you did. for some reason. I don't have a pass to this building. So I have to I get locked every time we come to do podcasts. I get locked in it. one meter by one meter square that I can't get through. That has a door that I don't have a pass to.
0: Right. So and I get I'm, the
1: text. I'm locked behind the door. Yeah. And then Dee Dee came. She was coming to get me. And I thought I'm gonna li- I'm gonna lay down on the ground and pretend to be dead.
0: That's funny. She didn't. <laughs> but instead, I opened up the door and she was there going ta-da. I was posing like a model. Well,
1: I thought if I <laughs> pretended to be dead, perhaps someone else would open the door and see me on the floor.
0: Well, so now, when you did that, um years ago, in another radio station <laughs> I used to work at had a, a lift in the center of the building, and it would come up, yeah, and then ding, the doors would open, and in front of where the doors open was the reception desk. And so I was in the lift with, I can't remember who, and I said, let's do dead bodies on the floor. So we laid on the floor of the lift, it's pretended so- to be dead. <laughs> and it's that
1: impulsive, <laughs> stupid moment when your mind goes, let's do something really and we're effing t- stupid. we're laughing, we're like, this is going
0: to be so good. We're going to terrify the life out of whoever the receptionist is at is, is the time. Uh, so the lift goes up, the doors open, ding, you can hear a bit of the music playing in the background, probably Billy Joel or something, and nothing. Nothing and we're waiting for the screams, oh my god, Doody's dead, and whoever it was that was with me just climbed over <laughs> you, got in. And we're there for <laughs> ages, five. and we're like, how long do we wait here? And I can't keep holding my breath, thinking she's gonna know we're alive. And then we remembered that the way the reception desk was, she was sort of down low, oh, she couldn't see, but then see there was you. a higher bit of the counter, she couldn't see, she couldn't see floor oh. level. She was low, and She was looking at the lift thinking. Why is there nothing, no one's well, in the lift, why did the lift I, come up? When I
1: went to scare you, I was pretty much doing squats in that area because I squatted <laughs> to pretend to be dead and then I thought, no, I won't. And I thought, no, it would be funny. And I went back down again and then I decided not to and then I heard the door and so I posed. Oh,
0: <laughs> and the pose was very charming. I just thought of another dead bodies incident. This is, just tells you how long I've been obsessed with it. So my husband, Kieran, and I, our best couple friends are Pete and Ann. Who Who went first? I think. They went first. Really? They Someone had got, no, it was like this thing that happened. So they lived together in Frankston, we lived together in Baxter. And I can't remember if we, so someone came around to our house selling saucepans, like a door-to-door salesman. Okay. And I think we sent the salesman to them that's, or did they send the salesman to us? I can't remember. What One of us sent story you're telling? I don't know. <laughs> Hang on, it gets to the dead bodies. Anyway, they must have sent the salesman to us and said, oh, our friends, Kieran and Dee they really need some saucepans. So this guy turned up on our doorstep and pestered us, and they'd done it. So to get them back, we said, why don't you come over for dinner, guys? And they said, yeah, sure. And what time they were going to be there? When they got there. You say it in that voice. Of <laughs> <laughs> whatever, I can't remember. <laughs> We did a full murder scene in our flat, tomato sauce, everything. We were on the floor. We had a knife with sauce all over. We were both flayed out on the floor with sauce all over like we were dead. So they like pushed the door and came in. Your life is
1: incredible. (laughs) And you just keep coming out with
0: this stuff. I'd forgotten it. Yeah. And what happened? Well, they got it. No, I think they laughed. I think they, they knew. knew. you weren't dead. Tomato sauce doesn't look like blood. At all. No, and they knew that we were, like, going to get them back for the saucepan thing. Right. Mm. So
1: you just ruined your white shirt. Yeah. <laughs> There's tomato sauce all over it
0: for nothing. We tried. We tried. We tried. Who goes first this week?
1: Um. Well, I think I have to talk about what I touched on last episode. Oh, God,
0: yes, you do have to. Go but on. I feel like it's controversial.
1: But I'm going to talk about it. But I need to just, like... If you're going to be a shit person and think
0: that I'm, that I'm. I think you have to not think about what other people are going to think.
1: I know, but I need to. Okay. Warning, warning. If you think that I am saying yes, murdering is okay. Yes. Then stop listening.
0: I'm not saying that. Yeah.
1: I'm not saying that, but if you're prone to think that, then, you know, I'm just worried that people are going to.
0: Don't worry about stuff.
1: Okay. So, do I talk about. I think
0: if they're listening to this podcast, they're not worried about stuff like yeah, that. Yeah. Okay.
1: So, it's the only murderer I've ever felt sorry for. And I've covered a lot of
0: murderers. Okay. Okay. I think I'm going to be okay with this. Oh, I don't know if you are. Because I, no, but I often can see people's points of view. I. It's, a, mm. I think, a fault of mine, especially when it's, you work in talkback radio and you're supposed to have a definite opinion. I'm so easily swayed to someone else's point of view.
1: So, so go, please chime in. Okay. It's the story of Safina Nikat.
0: It sounds vaguely familiar and I can't really think what happened.
1: Okay. So I'll talk you through the crime. And then I'll tell you a bit about her background, which is what made me feel bad for her. Mm. So Safina Nikat was 23 years old. She lived in Heidelberg West. And it was in April 2016, you'd remember this, that uh, we, and I say we as the media, who then informed the public, woke to the news uh, on April 9th that a baby had been stolen out of a pram. Oh,
0: I do remember this. Yes. Yes. Oh, really? You're going to have to work hard because my feelings, now remembering that case, was anger at her. This is
1: what I knew that you would feel like this. Mm. It's controversial. Explain it to me. Okay, so she said that she had taken her baby girl, Saniya, down for a walk uh, along Derribin Creek in Victoria and that a man had snatched the baby from the pram and run away.
0: She said... A black man. I was getting to that. Okay, sorry. So
1: I covered it at crime scene. I your story. And I lied to the public over and over and over again, not knowing I was lying, mm. saying a man of African appearance mm-hmm. who was barefoot smelling of alcohol uh, is the description that this mother has given, uh, the baby was stolen, blah, blah, blah. I said that over and over because that's, that's mm. the line we got from police. Yeah. So that's what she had told them. That's what they were telling us until they could prove otherwise. So on April 10 at 3 a.m., Baby Sinai's body was found face down in the creek. Mm. Um, on April twelfth, Safina Nikat was arrested. She was formally interviewed and made full admissions to suffocating her baby girl. Mm. There were dozens of tributes left at the creek. People were outraged by this because there were literally members of the public out looking for a man of African appearance who was barefoot smelling of alcohol, looking for him to get this baby back. Mm. Um, and then she's obviously found dead. Now, Safina Nikat was originally charged with murder and she pleaded guilty to infanticide. Yeah. So I'm not, I'll explain what infanticide is. So it is a charge that can be applied when a mother kills a child mm. and it can be proven that the mother has a disturbed mind as a result of giving birth to that child. It has to be within two years of giving birth to the child. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. And it has a maximum of five years jail. Right, okay. So murder can be life, infanticide five years. hmm So... I covered this story at Crime Scene and I think that made me really attached to it because then I became a court reporter and I followed it through the entire court process as well, which really makes you attached to a story when you know what the crime scene looks like in your head and then all of a sudden you're in the courtroom and you're hearing about everything that you didn't know back then and you're putting all the pieces together. Now, I'll just give you a little bit of background on Safina Nikat. Now, she uh, was married in 2012. It was an arranged marriage. Uh, She came to Australia from Fiji. She found it really difficult living in Australia because she was separated from her parents and she was very attached to her parents. Mm -hmm. Her marriage was also extremely difficult. She mainly lived with her in-laws and she had a very fractured relationship with them as well. In 2013, she miscarried. Mm -hmm. In 2014, her marriage became worse to the point where she got an intervention order Um,
0: So she's effectively alone then?
1: She's isolated and Mm. she's alone.
0: Yeah. And looking after a baby.
1: And looking after a baby. Mm.
0: Which is hard work.
1: Absolutely. And uh, one of the stories that we were told uh, during the court proceedings were, were that uh, her husband, when he, I have to say, refutes this, he says it's not true, that mm-hmm. there was never any need for an intervention order, um, told her to get herself ready and the baby ready because they were going to go to a party, and he took her to her house and left her there. What? He just left her there. So this is the kind of thing she's dealing with in her marriage. Um, now, in January 2015, she seemed to reconcile with her husband, and that's when she fell pregnant with baby Sanaya. Her parents had come down when she had the baby, so she had her support network around her, Mm. and then in July, they left. They went back to Fiji, and the problem started again. By November, she was living in a women's refuge with the baby. Mm. Um, Now, she spent time with her cousin in Heidelberg West, and that's where she was when she went for the walk with baby Sanaya and suffocated her. In March 2016, she told a child health nurse that baby Sanaya was waking during the night and needed to be fed, um, and she said that she wanted to finalise her divorce. Um, fast forward to two weeks before she killed baby Sanaya, she was often talking about suicide and how she was struggling with her situation. Mm. Um, she had zero support. Her lawyer said she was socially and emotionally iso- isolated, and she had a low IQ. I am not saying that killing your baby is okay. Mm. It is never acceptable. It is never okay. But I felt for her situation so you could understand her level of desperation. I could un- I felt like I really understood her level of desperation. I don't have children, so I don't I don't know what it's like to have children. I'm putting that out there as well. But I felt for her in the fact that she came to Australia looking for a better life and I know there are people out there that will say there is absolutely nothing, absolutely nothing anyone can say that makes it okay and I agree with that but I'm just saying I I felt her desperation, that she was mm. isolated in a country where she didn't know anyone. Mm. She, her marriage was bad to the point where she felt she needed an intervention order. She was living in, living in a women's refuge with a child that was waking through the night. She was obviously sleep-deprived. She didn't have any support network and I just, I felt bad for her.
0: I know you're not saying, you're not condoning the killing of the baby because I don't think there's any point of desperation that is far enough that you kill Absolutely. another human being, especially your own child, yes. who has nobody but you to look after them and trust. I know where you're coming from.
1: I just think what an awful place she must have been in to think this world is so horrible
0: that I don't want my kid to live in but it. But I, I was annoyed, very annoyed, that she – why did she have to – point the finger at, you know, and mm. say that this man, you know, like a, at were, a time when there were a lot of African youths carrying out sort of bad there was, things around was, town. For
1: people that aren't from Melbourne, it was a time in Melbourne where the phrase of African appearance was being, it was on repeat in yeah. the news when it came to crime. It was being said over and over again. This caused a lot of angst within certain communities and,
0: um, and fair enough, too. I also think that there's there's enough services in this city, mm. and we are in Melbourne, that's where we, we do our podcast, that you don't have to get to the point where you have to kill your baby. No. Leave it on the doorstep at a hospital yes. if you must. Yes. You know, leave it somewhere. Go to a, a mothercraft. Or mm. what do they call it, the Child and Maternal Health Centre. Uh, just leave yeah. it there.
1: And I agree with that.
0: And that's wrong. I I'm not suggesting anyone do that.
1: I think I just felt for her in the sense that, I don't see the world that way, and how awful it would be to see the world that way. There were a lot of other things at play as well. It was proven that she had a disturbed mind, so that also comes into it. I think that's the key
0: thing. And but when you have a baby, uh, you know, even if you're relatively together or you think you're relatively mm. together, and you know, I was lucky enough when I had my children to have a husband who was great. But I had times as a you know I consider myself to be reasonably intelligent and reasonably emotionally mature where I would just sit there rocking and crying and holding a crying baby and yeah. saying, I can't do this, I can't do this, because you don't know what to do yeah. and you you hesitate to ask anyone. I yeah. could have picked up the phone and rang my mum and said, Mum, I just can't cope, I can't cope.
1: And there were other and I didn't things want to her. going on as well, like her family had consulted, I don't know if I'm using the right words, perhaps some sort of witch doctor who had told her the baby was possessed and blah, blah, blah. There was all these other it things It sounds that a bit more complicated than just well. a struggling mother. I'll just read yeah. you something that the judge said he said your conduct has resulted in a tragedy as is always the case with the deliberate killing of one so young and thoroughly defenseless. It is a tragedy for you and everyone connected with your family. It is true, as your counsel submitted, that the death occurred with what might be described as minimal violence. I accept that the way you acted after you killed Sonia was consistent with your irrational mental state.
0: So he's calling it irrational, mm. the the story the fanciful story that she told whereas I saw it as manipulative at the time. Yeah. And maybe, you know, now that you've explained it a bit better, I can understand where she was coming from, but I still can't forgive it. I, no. I'm not I'm not judging you. No, I, know,
1: and I don't forgive because it. Because you were
0: closer to it. I know. I wasn't and I, sitting there in a room with her. I definitely
1: don't forgive it. I just had a moment. In, like normally I'm like, let me think of all the describing words I can use to make this person evil. Mm. And so she served, a, a, I think, more than 500 days on remand before yeah. sentence. And on sentence she was released. Okay. on a court order um, and she was released into a protection refuge, like a women's protection, right, okay. something like that. And I think it's likely that she'll be deported back to a family that she is now shamed from, I think. Mm. So, she, you know, she killed her child and she only spent 500 and something days in jail. And mm. I under- there's so much outrage linked with that. And, again, I'm not saying it's okay. I just felt for her
0: situation. Yeah, yeah. Hmm, interesting. Mm.
1: But Bichishana will be back with all the other murderers. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry about that.
0: Um, bitchy Chanel, Annoying Chanel. Will she be back? Yes, yeah, she's back already. Look at her. She's sitting there looking bitchy at Bitchy and now. Annoying Chanel is my life. Annoying Chanel. Keep those guesses coming, by the way, of where Chanel would hide a dead body. Um, I think a few people have suggested drain. It's a common one that's coming through mm, on it's Facebook. Not a drain. and on No, but that got me to thinking. And I did, I think I referred to it briefly in our last episode that I remembered the body of a little girl being found in a drain on the Mornington Peninsula some years ago. And so I am going to tell you the story of that little girl so that we never forget her and her sad life.
1: Can I tell you something? Yes. Okay, so one time when I was uh, a few years back, we thought cops said bones have been found. Have I told this story?
0: The chicken bones.
1: Yeah. Oh, she had told it. (laughs)
0: She I don't remember if I told you in real memory. life or on podcast, I get confused.
1: <laughs> all right. Anyway, for those who don't know, we all rushed out there and it was KFC. Anyway, go.
0: All right. <laughs> oh, a six year old, Cherie Beasley, is a little girl. She went missing back in 1991. Where was I? Yeah, I was working in the newsroom. So this was a story that I covered at the time, and um, that's probably why it stuck in my mind. So she was a happy, healthy little girl, six years old, and a lot had happened to her in her life. Her stepfather, Shane Beasley, had a chronic drug habit, and I think mm. Cherie had seen him overdose more than once. Oh, um and he eventually died of a drug overdose. Her mother, Kerry Greenhill, she had some health issues as well and she was struggling. She was she did her best to give Cherie a good life, but she, she really did struggle. And at one stage, Cherie was placed into the care of her grandparents. Uh, I think she lived with them for about eight months. And then when Kerry, the mother, got well enough again, Cherie came back to live with her. And she started at Monterey Primary School in Frankston. And Kerry, the mother, went on to have two more babies. It was a little girl. And a baby boy, brother and sister for Cherie, but, uh, and I think it was Cherie herself who found the little boy one morning dead in his cot, oh. apparently from SIDS, sudden infant death syndrome. Oh, that's terrible, which is so she'd seen a lot. Um, By all accounts, she was actually a really bright, happy little child. She was sort of the one that would smile at random people in the room and light a room up. She started dance lessons and she was very independent. She would ride to classes alone on her bike. On one occasion, a man was spotted near the dance school asking children to get into his car. Wonderful. That man's name is Robert Lowe. Now, he had also been spotted exposing himself at the local swimming pool and the police had spoken to him. They knew about him and they warned him to stay away from children. There
1: was a guy like that at my high school. We used to call him the wanking man. Where did (laughs) he... Seriously? Really? Yeah. And he used to um, stand across where my school was obviously there's a road out the front and then there was a car park and that car park was surrounded by trees and he used to stand in there and he'd wear a long coat and he when he'd see us go past he'd open up the coat and well wow. it's obvious what he did because what but we what called him. what did kids do? We thought it was hilarious.
0: Well, this is interesting. When I, My friend uh, Valerie and I, used to, she lived in Mornington. We'd go down to Mornington Beach. And one day we were down. I think we were looking for mussels on the rocks. And we were the only two people on the beach. It was a, yeah. not a particularly sunny day. And, there and there a, a guy came ant. walking towards us, yeah, with like little red Speedos on and carrying a tail over his shoulder. Yeah. And he walked past us. He walked right along the shore. And we were sitting further back on the sand. And then he came back. And I just, you know, you just know. You know. How old was I? I was probably about 12. Um, something was wrong. And he, he walked a, along the shoreline and then he came up the sand towards oh. us and he said from memory something like, do you girls want a good fucking? <gasps> and we were 12. We
1: That's worse than the wanking man. But he didn't say laugh. anything. He just stood there furiously getting down.
0: Ooh-ee. Mm. Um, and so – all I could think of was, I don't, I, I Valerie didn't speak. I said, no, we don't. And we just sat frozen to the spot. We honestly didn't know no, what we... to do. And he turned and walked away and he walked further up the beach and then he turned into a <gasps> banking man. Damn. And we then hightailed it up to the house, but we didn't tell our parents because you kind of feel like you're the ones.
1: We thought it was hilarious, but I can't remember if we told our parents. We told our principal, though. We told teacher who told
0: I had the another one too. <gasps> I was with my friends and we were walking up there were t- I think it was the same guy we were going up to walk horses to ride horses and the guy was parked on the side of the road and as we there was me Teresa and I can't remember the other girl's name I was 10 and as we got up level with his car he asked us you know directions to get to somewhere and he was sitting in the driver's seat and he had it it <gasps> out isn't it funny because you're thinking about your, how old were you then? 10. Your 10-year-old 10 brain
1: and you can't say penis because <laughs> you're, t- you're in your 10-year-old brain. So you're going, he had
0: it we sort out. of we ran off. We rode the horses, and as we were walking back, when we got back to near where there's a, there was a lane that came off the road we were walking on called Stotts Lane, and we looked up Stotts Lane, and I'm sure it was the same guy. was parked, got out of his car, and was wearing just a business shirt and nothing down the bottom half, and was and he had it out, yeah. And we ran over to the milk bar, but we didn't tell our mum and dad. Weird. And can I give you the third one? May as there's well a while, third we're, one? while we're at it. <laughs> Because this one, this one, I think, is a famous one. I oh. and I've told Mum and Dad about this one, but only told them now as a as an adult. Um, I lived right opposite Baxter Park, and Teresa and I had gone over there to play, and there was it, it, there was no one anywhere. Baxter's sure. like out in the sticks, and um, there was a little toilet at the tennis club, and we walked past it, and there was a man in there wearing a brown coat, and I can remember him. He had a long, thin face. And he was holding out his hand. There was a 20 cent piece in his hand. Oh. And he was holding it out towards us. And he said, Do you girls want to come in here? And we just, whatever little, I was probably only 10 or 11 at that time, your whatever radar instinct went it off. was. Yeah, our radars <laughs> went off. We ran home. We did tell mum. Yeah. I Do you think reckon as you mum took the money,
1: he would have grabbed your hand?
0: Probably, yeah. I am convinced. So I did tell mum that at the time, but it's only as an adult that it's all the pieces have fallen back into place. I'm convinced that that man was Derek Percy. (gasps) Convinced. No. Absolutely convinced. Really? He was posted down at Cerberus, which I lived in Baxter. He was down at Cerberus at the time and he was, well, he he killed children. He abducted and killed children. I'm sure and it was him. And they tried to
1: get a deathbed confession out of him. And, and he would, never did. He wouldn't talk.
0: And when I see pictures of him now, my blood runs cold. You know I'm sure him. it was him. Yep. I've actually tried through Facebook and I, I don't know how. My friend Teresa, they were an Irish family and she went back. I, I believe they went back to live in Ireland and I've tried to track it down and I can't find her. I would love to find her,
1: to show her as a an photo adult now Percy. to say
0: – What do you remember of that day? Do you remember it was this guy? Because I'm sure it was him. Anyway.
1: You haven't found her?
0: No, haven't found her. I'll find her. Give it a try.
1: Back to your story. Sorry.
0: Cherie. Uh, So Robert Lowe. All right. So police knew about him. They warned him to stay away from children. Now... On June the 29th, 1991, Cherie, uh, she was living down in Rosebud at this point. She was riding her little pink bike to the Lighthouse Milk Bar in Rosebud. It was just before two o'clock in the afternoon. And on her way back from the milk bar, she saw a friend from school, a little boy. And she was talking to him when a man pulled up in a small blue car and he told her to get in. Now, according to the little boy, who spoke to the police later, Cherie said to hit the man, No way, I'm not getting off the bike for nothing. So the man got out of his car and dragged her inside and left Mm. her bike lying on the side of the road. So when Cherie didn't come home from the shop, her mum got really worried. A neighbour came and knocked on her door and said that Cherie's bike had been found. That's such a haunting
1: image, isn't it? Leaning against a tree. In te- television news so many times to mm.
0: illustrate children, you shoot the, the toy in the front yard or yeah. that bike. The little pink bike, mm. yeah. Uh, so the bike was there, but Cherie was nowhere to be found. So the police were onto it very quickly. They arrived within minutes at their home and at the scene where the bicycle was found. Um, so that was around 2 o'clock. By 5 o'clock, she'd been gone for three hours mm. and a police bulletin went out announcing that a six-year-old girl had gone missing in But The whole community was out trying to find her. Um, the local handyman came forward to say that he'd seen a blue car parked next to two phone boxes near where the bike was found, but he didn't see the driver. Um, a family... And this particular family and this other woman I'm about to mention to you, these are the people that stick in my mind apart from Cherie herself in this story because you can imagine what these people went through. So this family, the Henley family, they told police that they'd uh, seen a car driving toward them and the mother said she saw a little girl wearing a bicycle helmet sitting in the front seat. Mm. And she said the little girl was upset. She looked at the driver and he looked back at her angrily. Can you imagine how she felt that she saw that? And you don't – It's. I don't think we react – I think we're better now, but I don't think – we always think – the. we don't think the worst.
1: I think I've got a tarnished brain, though, because of all the reporting I've done. If, like, if an old man – I don't know, if I see an old man at the supermarket, my brain goes, pedophile. But
0: would you straight away chase after that car and go, hey, what's going on here? Or would you automatically think, oh, that's a little girl who's in trouble with her dad?
1: Absolutely. Who's to say that he didn't go and pick her up because she's out playing and she's meant to be home and that's why she's wearing a bicycle helmet?
0: Yeah. So you don't know that... No, you're not to know. But you can imagine later... Retrospectively. The agony... Of those people For on sure. what they saw that they that they didn't know to act at the time. Um, another woman, Janine Kemp, said that she had seen the bike on the side of the road. She picked it up and leaned it against a tree oh. so it wouldn't get run over doing the what right she thought thing. was the right thing. But she didn't think anything more of it at the time. She just went on her way. So um, it became this huge search. They started door knocking, police set up roadblocks. They had helicopters. They had dogs taking part. A really intense search and there was nothing. There was no sign of Cherie. Now, the police alert had been noticed by a psychotherapist by the name of Margaret Hobbs. She had a patient with a history of predatory behaviour towards children and she knew that he was in the Rosebud area and his name was Robert Lowe. There's that name again. Mm. Uh same man that police had warned away from children. So, on the day that Cherie went missing... Robert Lowe got home to his house in Glen Waverley. Now, if you're not from this area, that's about, a, at that time, probably a 60-minute drive from Rosebud. Yeah. He got home to his house in Glen Waverley at around sunset. His wife heard the washing machine start, which she thought was a bit odd because he never usually did the washing.
1: This is freaky because the wanking man was in
0: Waverley. Uh, The next day, Robert Lowe's wife saw him taking a big rubbish bag to the car, Mm. um, but he was in a bad mood, so she didn't ask him about it. I think from what I read about their relationship that she, she was probably scared of him. Right. Um, And especially on this particular occasion. So police were able to speak to the little boy who had seen the man in the car who took Sheree, which is incredible because the little boy was only six years old. Kids are
1: amazing. He was able to give
0: a bit of a description of the car. It was over two weeks later, July 17, a lady named Sue Marks and her daughter Danielle came forward two weeks later. And again, these people... I can imagine how they would struggle with this. They said that they had seen something on the Nepean Highway on the day Cherie disappeared. Again, if you're not from Melbourne, the Nepean Highway is the route you would take if you were going from Rosebud to Glen Waverley. She was really distressed reporting what she'd saw. So on that day, she said it was after 2.15pm, her daughter was outside playing on the footpath and she was out sweeping the driveway and the traffic had slowed down because there was roadworks out the front. In fact, the traffic had come to a complete stop in front of their house. And it was the little girl playing on the footpath who alerted her mum because she saw a little girl in the car and said, Mummy, something's wrong with that little girl. And the mother looked and saw Cherie's face pressed up against the glass, distressed and screaming for help. (gasps) Now, I don't know why she didn't come forward until two weeks later. Again, it might just be that thing if she didn't put Two and two together. She didn't associate a little girl who'd gone missing in Rosebud with something that she saw. And I don't know what suburb that was in, but I'm guessing it's somewhere further up, not in Rosebud. I
1: think for witnesses as
0: well, and this is definitely my
1: experience in crime and courts, is that they sometimes think, well, there's a lot of reasons people don't come forward, but sometimes they think, oh, what could I contribute? What, yeah. what, what what good is me telling the cops that? You know, is it really that? No, do I really need to tell them? Or she may have just felt so awful about it that she mm. just couldn't bring herself to tell them. And then someone said, you have to.
0: Yeah, I don't know. But I can imagine the pain that she went through with that. Mm. um So using that information, now the police were able to establish the route that he had probably taken. Right. They kind of figured that it was him. Um, and she actually, this woman t- turned out to be um, very useful, Sue Marks, because she was able to give police a good description of the car. So they pinned it down to the fact that it was a blue Corolla. So her, her um, evidence or, or her witness statement very proved, turned out to be invaluable, actually, in this particular case. So it was a blue Corolla from 1985 to 1989. She picked it out of a car lineup. So they made up a flyer with that on. They made that public. Uh, police went to Toyota. They were told that there was, 775 of those cars in the country. They stopped blue Toyotas all over town. They checked where all the owners had been on that day that Sheree had gone missing, but nobody fitted the description of, of the man driving the car. Mm. Robert Lowe's own son had been driving that car and his learner's permit, and he asked his dad should they take their car to the police station because he knew that police were looking, checking out all those cars. And uh, Robert Lowe said no. <gasps> I feel like his family were probably on to him. Red flag. Yeah. Yeah. Go on, throw your red flags about. Yep. While this was all happening, Robert Lowe was keeping his appointments with his therapist, Margaret Hobbs. Now, oh, did
1: he disclose anything to his therapist?
0: Well, he'd been going to see her apparently for marital Problems, but she reported that he was uh, yes, exactly. He was very agitated, and she became quite suspicious of him. And she's our other hero in this story because she knew that he had a blue Toyota hatchback, and she was worried that he was actually the one that had abducted Cherie. So she would know. She's
1: a therapist. She'd be seeing things
0: but what she did next has caused a great deal of argument but i i think it makes her a, a hero in in there's no question about it well, We
1: started it. this episode being controversial so let's
0: continue Well she decided to break the patient physician Um, Oh, I would do that. Understanding. I would do that. Well, it's generally not done. It's a confidentiality that's, that's respected within the medical profession. But she reported him to police and she gave them permission to take sessions, her sessions with him. So police went and spoke to Robert Lowe and he told them that he'd been at home with his wife and family on the day that Cherie disappeared. Uh, He also said that he never went to Rosebud at all, which was just a blatant lie because Mm. he had a holiday house there. And he refused to give police his phone number. This is in the days before mobile phones. Um, So on the surface... Robert Lowe, just have a bit of a look at who he was. He appeared to be the perfect citizen, so he was a family man. He was a a well-respected travelling salesman and an elder in his local Presbyterian church. Hmm. I don't go to church, and I just hate the fact so many people hide behind the veneer of the church to do their dirty ways. Uh, He was a junior cricket coach and a Sunday school teacher. But police did a background check and they found that he had priors for indecent exposure and indecent assault. Now, back in 1956, when he was only 19, he'd stolen a car in England and tried to run down a policeman. In his 20s, he was arrested and charged in New Zealand when he lived there on counts of indecent assault on a male and theft. And he faced two charges in New Zealand for willful and obscene exposure, for which he served a six-month prison sentence. So he moved then to Australia. And he was interviewed on more than a dozen occasions and appeared in court on charges of indecent behaviour, loitering for sexual purposes, willful and obscene exposure wow, and it's a theft. a real grub. Yeah, mm. absolutely is. So around the same time, he was arrested for fondling himself in front of schoolgirls and charged with obscene exposure and lewd behaviour, and he was released on bail. We're going to stop letting people out on bail, don't we? What year was that? Uh, 1991 okay. yeah. Uh, so police went back and questioned his wife Lorraine While uh, Robert Lowe was away Because he was a travelling salesman He was up in Sydney They went and questioned her again And she again said she thought that he was home that day um, That he'd been to a church meeting that morning And when Lowe got back home from Sydney And she said the police have been here asking about you He went crooked her and said to her Don't talk to the police The police then spoke to Lorraine again and they told her that he was a suspect in the Cherie Beasley kidnapping.
1: And she's still missing? No body at this point?
0: Nothing at this point, right. no. Um, the police actually showed Robert Lowe's wife the um, his recent arrest reports. And so she changed her story then. And she said, "Oh, actually, no, I do remember he wasn't at home that day. So he cracked it with her and he moved out and went to live in his flat down in Rosebud, which the police had bugged yeah they had and i gather um now i'm not certain about this i can't remember where i heard it but i think they found a partial small palm print oh. on the back of a bedroom door in the flat but i'm not entirely certain At about Rosebud. that Yes, in the flat down at Rosebud. Yeah, so it was nearly four months after Cherie disappeared that someone stumbled across her decomposed body in a concrete drain. I can remember being in the newsroom when it happened, because we—I think you just always hold out hope. I remember secretly, everyone was just hoping and hoping
1: she'd be found alive, that she'd
0: be found, and she wasn't. So um, it was quite a small pipe, only like a foot, thirty centimeters wide. And, um, yeah, she'd been stuffed inside. It was on Mornington Flinders Road in Red Hill. Um, In the meantime, police had been following up thousands and thousands of leads that they'd had. A guy by the name of Detective Senior Constable Andrew Gustke was the first to speak to Lowe. He says he was immediately suspicious. And many years later, in fact, it was last year, he actually spoke to Police Life magazine about the case. Mm -hmm. And... um, I should thank them because I read their article in order to tell you this. He says that when he sp- first spoke with Lowe, something wasn't right. Everyone else, when they were asked about the day that Shorey went missing, most people said something like, oh, I can't remember. Or they had to say, look, I'm just going to ask my friend. I might have been at her place, but I can't remember. Like most people.
1: I can't remember what I did yesterday. Exactly.
0: Yeah. But not Lowe. He knew straight up. Oh, no, I was at home that day. Oh, without him, had it down yeah. pat. Uh, he also told them that he didn't have a property in that area, which was a lie. Um, and he'd even told members at the the church that he'd gone down to Rosebud to fix tiles on his holiday unit there. Um, he, in actual fact, had spotted Cherie the week before when oh. he'd been down there and had picked her out. As his targets And he planned to kidnap her her. So this um, uh, Constable Andrew Hang on, Detective Senior Constable Andrew Gusky, He said the way he spoke about A little six-year-old girl was disgusting She was nothing to him Lowe was arrested on the 29th of March 1993. He was remanded in custody in Pentridge Prison. And this is where it gets even more interesting. He was sharing a cell with a man named Peter Reed, who had a long criminal history. I'm sure you've probably heard mm-hmm. the name, uh, including killing a police officer. But Reed himself was disgusted by what Lowe was telling him. So Reed became a police informer. Um, he captured a confession. On among
1: thieves? Yeah. <laughs>
0: He confessed a, uh, got a confession from Lowe on tape. So he wore a wire in and was able to get him to talk enough that he got some stuff that was useful to the police. So on the, on this particular tape, Lowe described how he'd driven up and asked Cherie if he, if she wanted a ride home. He claimed, or well, this is what he said to Peter Ree in, in the cell, he said that she had come willingly with him, um, but then she got upset when she realised that he was going the wrong way to take her home to her house. And he claimed that she got more and more upset when he said he couldn't get off the freeway and he'd have to go a little bit further, that he pulled off on the side of the road, tried to calm her down, but she started to choke. And this is the story he's telling Reid. I can't. No, I know. It's just absolute bullshit. Um, He said he tried to help her, but in a state of panic, um, he somehow choked her. And what
1: do these morons think detectives are going to do at that point? Oh, no worries, mate. Oh, you're oh, such a good Pat guy. on the back. Thanks for doing that. You tried to stop oh, her from choking. Go.
0: Yeah. Why didn't you take her to a hospital then? Oh. He had an answer for that too. He said he didn't take her to a hospital because they would need to know the circumstances under which she had arrived there. So he knew he'd done wrong. He's just full of it.
1: So this is when he's confronted with all the yeah confession. He starts. Yeah.
0: Wrong. Okay. Um, So then he went on to describe to Raid how he dumped her body. Um, And again, he tried to make out as though he was this caring, lovely guy that he had placed her gently into a drain, just put her body into there. Uh, He said he removed her helmet and clothing as he couldn't fit her in without the clothing on. Uh, he said it looked very tight. I took her clothes off and I said a prayer. I put her there gently, very gently, slid her in, pushed her with my hands, pushed her in a bit further, then covered the whole drain. It's it's almost unbelievable, isn't it? He's, he's making it sound like he did something. Mm. He said he'd left Cherie wearing her underwear, but she was found with her underpants on. So everything he said was absolute crock of shit. Um we're really Peter,
1: mouthy in this episode.
0: We are very, aren't we? Mm. Yeah, poo-bum-wee. Um, Peter Reed, the other prisoner, said that Lo boasted that he had cleaned the driveway into the car after cleaning up Cherie's blood. So he must have, I don't know where he killed her. Uh, he said he also had learned his lesson this time and next time oh. he would use Valium on his victims. So he didn't learn his lesson. Oh, not there won't be a next time. Thank you. Thank Just you.
1: Next time. I'll do it better.
0: Mm. So Peter Reid testified in court. Uh, He said that Lowe had told him Sheree had choked while being. Oh no, I can't even. I can't even. He'd forced her to perform an act on him, and that she. Yeah. It just that poor child. Um, Anyway, well done, Peter Reid, because he even got Robert Lowe to draw maps and sketches of what happened. So all the information was there. It was everything that they needed in court. Blow pleaded not guilty to the kidnapping murder of Cherie Beasley.
1: Oh, hold on. I just need to roll my eyes further back into my head. Yeah. Okay, I'm good.
0: Three years and four months after Cherie was murdered, he stood trial before a jury of six men and six women. On November the 30th, 1994, they unanimously found him guilty of kidnapping, for which he got 15 years' jail, and murder, for which he got life and his files were marked never to be released. And uh, Justice Cummins, who sentenced him, said that Cherie had acted intelligently and bravely. He said, a series of witnesses along the Nepean Highway leave us with a haunting, indeed indelible imprint in our minds of the fear and distress of that young girl. I I have always been able to just picture her poor little face up against the glass. Can you imagine?
1: How terrifying for her.
0: Yeah. So her mother screamed out from the public gallery. She said, just remember, Lo, Cherie got the death sentence. Outside the court afterwards, her grandfather, Neil Greenhill, said, I hope that with all those shadows in his cell that he thinks to himself, maybe that's the Antichrist in there moving with him. Mm. Um, It was six years later, December 2010, Lowe was caught running a depraved sex ring from inside Ararat jail. What? He had child porn smuggled into him on, on USB sticks and memory cards Smuggled in internally. What a lovely um, group oh, of people he must work just... with.
1: Okay, we've spoken about this before. Death
0: penalty. Oh, I still can't. What? I know he's the worst, but I. Ju- I want. Him I'm micing him out there. I want him in the cell with the antichrist. Um, he apparently had been allowed to use com- computers in because he said he was doing church classes or something. He certainly wasn't doing Bible readings in there. What he was doing was grooming younger mentally ill prisoners to be pedophiles by showing them that There is material.
1: no rehabilitation for someone like that.
0: No. Margaret Hobbs, the psychotherapist, our yes. hero, She started writing a book based on her experience, but she died in a car accident before finishing it. So it was later completed and published by Andrew Rule, who I'm sure you know, veteran crime journalist. Of course. That book is called The Evil Inside the Mind of a Child Killer, if you want to buy that book and read it. And there's another book written by Wayne Miller, who worked for a time at uh, the Victoria Police Academy. He had been a... Um, a Herald Sun reporter at the time and his book is called The Murder of Cherie so there's two Mm. there Uh, Kerry Greenhill Cherie's mum now lives in South Australia and in 2015 on what would have been Cherie's 30th birthday she asked and this is via her Facebook page she asked the people of Mornington to put flowers on her daughter's grave hundreds of people gathered at Mornington Cemetery and they lay flowers and they said a prayer for Cherie Among the mourners was one of the people who had seen Cherie. I know, I'm nearly going to cry. Sorry. One of the people, I don't know which of the ones, but one of the people who had seen Cherie in Robert Lowe's car. And another of the mourners was the person who found the body in the drain, which I gather was just, you know, they just happened upon it. Uh, Cherie's mum, Kerry, was overwhelmed. She said, It's so heartwarming that my darling Cherie hasn't been forgotten. I'm so grateful, and Kerry, um, we remember her too.
1: We got mouthy and we got child killing in Mm. this episode. We didn't mean to. Yeah.
0: I don't think I'll ever forget her because I remember when reading the story in in the news and following that story,
1: Mm.
0: just that thought of her face. I
1: Googled her picture just before and I know it instantly. She's a sweet little freckle freckle face, face. 6 six-year-old.
0: Yep, Mm. yep. Very sad on the next episode of Dead Bodies. I
1: was so emaciated I couldn't get a pulse when he was alive. So I held my hand up to his nose to see if I could feel a breath, and there wasn't a breath, and like I said, his eyes were wide open and the moonlight was hitting them and they were like... You know, Flurry highlighters. They were so yellow. Mm -hmm. So I thought, okay, he passed away. You know, I'll close his eyelids in a dignified way. And and I went to lean in to close his eyes, and he suddenly (laughs) goes, I squealed and jumped back, and I was like, oh my God. (laughs) He's back. Um, Yeah, he's back. (laughs) <laughs> Wait, had you ever seen a dead body? No, no, I, like, I had just turned 19.
0: <laughs> dead Bodies is created by DD Dunleavy and Chanel Vela and produced by Kirsten Lim Howe. Contact us at deadbodiespodcast at gmail.com.